Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, unlocking the music within, making a splash, and conducting yourself accordingly. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. So Andrew, we're doing something for the first time. We are recording this introduction a week later. Yeah. Why didn't we do it at the time? Well, we were... It would have been rude. <laughs> it would have been weird. <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe rude. Um, so today's guest is the incomparable Peter McCoppin. Oh, what a guy. And he not only came on the podcast and gave up a couple hours of his time and just went went all in. And so he not only did that, but he also invited us into his home, mm-hmm. beautiful home, right right on the ocean yeah, in, in Vic West yeah. and uh, and took us for a tour of his garden. My gosh, yeah. Yeah. So I he would love that contract. He, he brought us <laughs> <laughs> He brought us right in and yeah. um, and welcomed us as if we were long friends. Yeah, and it and it felt like a conversation with friends. Peter is all heart. I mean, you you'll learn as, as intellectual as he is, he's also all heart and he's so intuitive and I mean just I felt like I'd known him. He, he's the one. He's the kind of person where just a few minutes of talking with him, you feel like you've known him for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, he just really, like like Andrew said, he invites us into his house, but also into his heart, mm-hmm. um, and, and shared some just some very powerful things about his mother and his grandmother and his and 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 just the importance they had in his life and growing up. And um, it was yeah, it was such a remarkable episode. Yeah, it was it was truly special. And uh, so Peter is has conducted symphonies on four continents. He is uh, in, a, in a large part responsible for bringing the symphony Splash to Victoria, which yeah. has become a, a huge and important tradition uh, for, for those who live on this part of the island and in this part of the world. And, um, and I, at the end of the episode, expressed uh, the deep meaning that that has created for my own family and, and the appreciation mm-hmm. that I have for that. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, really really special and um enjoyed this one thoroughly for sure yeah so enjoy this one folks we're not gonna we're not gonna make this introduction long because we had a very um amazing conversation with peter and we don't want to take away from that with our silly stories um and i i have done that in the past (laughs) (laughs) aka delivering pizza for boston pizza (laughs) i would say added to it but okay perfect it's all all perspective so yeah Settle into this one and do whatever you can to ground yourself and just open up your mind to the wisdom that, that Peter brings. And, and I guarantee you'll get something from it. Well, and like a beautiful piece of music, put on the headphones and allow this episode to wash over you and bring you calm. calm. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I tried to be deep, Andrew. I'm sorry. No. Enjoy the episode, folks. <laughs> Keep pushing through those obstacles. Yeah, I try. <laughs> Peter, we're thrilled to have you on and, and appreciative of you welcoming us into your home. And we've been looking forward to this conversation after we first spoke a couple months ago. And uh, thank you to Jason Dorland for the introduction. Mutual friend. And um, yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you on and, and take the time to have this conversation. And thank you for having us at your house, listeners. We are recording live. Not live, actually. We just went over that. <laughs> it feels like it's live, but we are recording in Peter's living room. And let me tell you, what a beautiful space. 
and we're going to get a tour of his uh, magnificent garden after this. Mm-hmm. But that that means a lot. It's it's difficult enough to to put yourself out there and come on a podcast and talk about yourself. But you've also brought us to your own personal space, and that uh, that you've you've raised the standards and so <laughs> of a uh, vulnerability. And and we appreciate that, Peter, and look forward to a to a great conversation. Mm-hmm. I too. So one of the places we were interested in starting. You do a lot of work now with communication and, and with connecting uh, the audience with the the presenter. And from your background as, as leading an orchestra and conducting, I wanted to invite you to share that experience of, of what it's like when you're really in flow and, and you are that conduit between the audience and the, the musicians, the or the music. Um, can you just describe the feeling and, and the sensations that you get when, when, you're, when you've been in that role? It's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, I've had that several times, and I think even the most celebrated performers would say that it, it doesn't always happen. It's, it's a rarity. Even with the best of intention and preparation and so forth, there are just those magical moments that happen for whatever reason. They just appear. And when that is there, I can remember, I'm just thinking now of a couple of performances. So one was the Dvorak Cello Concerto with Yo-Yo Ma. And this was in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was the conductor, music director for eight years. So in preparation for that event, we rehearsed the accompaniment. We had only one rehearsal and then the performance. And he's a celebrated person. He's a phenomenal musician by any measure, outstanding, inspiring. And so we got together just for an hour prior to the the actual rehearsal. And what did we do in that one hour? Uh, We talked about the Tao Te Ching, uh, (laughs) uh, Dag Hammarskjöld's markings, which we had both read, and the quartets of T.S. Eliot. And just before we went to the stage with the musicians, I said, could we just go over this one scale? Anyway, as it worked out, in, in the rehearsal, it was as if just intuitively nothing had to be ex- explained. It was just, it seemed just so inevitable and so natural. Then we got to the actual performance. And that, I've had that a, f- a few times. And to say, you talked about that flow state, mm-hmm. when there is that feeling of just surrendering to the moment, just mm-hmm. being, yes, uh, not, not to sort of say to give in, but to be so one with it. Yeah. And not in our heads, just governed by our hearts and intuition. And not even to intellectualize that. I don't even know how that actually happens. But it is, it's a phenomenal feeling. And it feels, I would say, breathless. Uh, it's meditative. Every, in other words, in the, when that has happened, it seems that everything is bathed in, in light. Um, it, that effortlessness is there. And yet, the, in, in, the effortlessness welcomes, engenders, and and excites. It. We'll call it, for one of a, a better word, a power mm-hmm. that is just phenomenal. It is. It's indescribable, and it, it just it comes. It it connects everyone in an experience of community that is that is wondrous. It, it's that's so. The music is just an agent for that. It's that we talk about the communion of saints. So it is a communion. 
And um, so I've had, so with Yulia Omar, I remember that, doing the, the Brahms Requiem in Vancouver was another time of that. And then um, the first time that I ever conducted in the Sydney Opera House. And we were, it, it, it was like, I, I was being guided by that. That's, I heard something about that recently where someone said, oh, I, I felt I was not even doing it. It was just, I was somehow guided by this. And to say so with, with absolute humility, However that happened, it was just connection. And I think what I learned out of that is just to get our head out of the way. I remember once Tony Robbins saying, if you stay in your head, you're dead. So just come back, just be it. How does it feel? Start from the place of your intuition, from your imagination, and just sink into yourself and let it go. What a, what a beautiful description, Peter. Um, what, what that made me think of was the people listening who who think that that sounds wonderful i, I would love to be in that state um I, I would guess that that state doesn't happen unless you've gone through the preparation beforehand and so you know you talk about getting out of your head well there's a period where you kind of do have to be in your head to get to the point where you can be out of your head yeah. so, so to speak and so um, i'm guessing that this was a result of the thousands and thousands of hours you've spent thinking about it, preparing it, actually doing it. And then you hit those rare states upon occasion where it's almost like it's a celebration of all the work that you did beforehand. Yeah, um, so, exactly. So how would you describe the link between you know, being prepared and achieving flow? Well, the preparation is, is essential, um, absolutely essential. And to an extent, we want to make it habitual but mindfully habitual there's a quotation which is attributed to aristotle but apparently he didn't say this which is we are what we repeatedly do excellence is not an act but a habit and so to to repeat and mindfully not just going through the motions of something but really to be mindful and just aware and just noticing oh what's going on within me what how am i how am i doing this differently or how could i do it a little better and to really be governed from the inside out rather than to sort of meet some external standard, to really find that, that voice within yourself. And then when we actually come to do it, just to let go. Mm -hmm. um, someone said to me once, when you're absolutely doing something well, you become invisible. So mm -hmm. it's to get the ego out of it. We're not, we're not doing this for some sort of gratification or, or praise or external dependency. But going back, we do it because we, we, we have a deep belief and, and a deep desire to serve. And it's in that serving that we release that sense of narcissism, I guess, um, which is, is a temptation to all of us. We, 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 all, we all want to be accepted and when I think about you know the origins of fear, why why are people afraid? Well, afraid because they won't they think they may not be good enough and maybe they won't be loved. Again, that's an external dependence. So how rather to turn that that around to simply say how can I serve? Um, you talked about vulnerability. I think that that's that's absolutely critical. Having said that, not vulnerability to say oh I'm so I'm so humble I'm so you know I'm, I'm so hard on myself and. No, there's no self-pity in that at all. Just to be real, mm. to be raw, and in the moment. Mm -hmm. 
So, in in a few moments, we're we're gonna go back and and start um, from a little a little ways back, and then kind of work our way back forward. Is is a, a, an arc that we often take when we're having these conversations. But I'm curious now, in in your life now that you're you're not conducting anymore, or at least very rarely um, have that opportunity to reach that. Um, that example of a flow state. Um, do you have any, is there anything missing there? Or do you have any longing for, for getting back into that? Or, or have you found something that, that is equally fulfilling? Well, it's a two-part question. Um, I often will watch uh, on YouTube uh, performances conducted by some amazing amazing people the standard i suppose the standard in athletics if we think about hockey in the 80s and hockey today it's oh my gosh the skill level is just (laughs) indescribable the improvement over that time and the same thing has applied in in the world of music as well Uh, certainly in in conductors some of the great conductors of the 50s 60s and 70s i i believe there those who are living today are are just far far better uh mm-hmm. their their skill level their their mental emotional capacity and also their humility the conductors in of that particular time they were known to be dictators there was no such thing as a musicians union i think until the late 60s and they could just hire and fire people at will and so forth and they were they were leading with intimidation many of them at least and that would that just doesn't work today that doesn't work in the corporate world and it certainly doesn't work in music and so, yes, so I watch these people and I marvel at them because I see a skill level that certainly is far greater than anything I could imagine. Having said that, I just look at them with, with such, almost with reverence to say, isn't that wonderful that this, somehow this human soul has, has this capacity and is, is able to, to, be, to ignite and to excite and to catalyze this amazing experience of community that is, that in which music is just an agent. And how beautiful that is. So yes, I, I contemplate music. I, I did get an inquiry from Google at, at one point, and they were looking for someone, at least to, to all appearances, who was equally a leadership course coach and a conductor. And they found two people in the United States and one in Canada. And this was to be uh, for a project in, in Fort Lauderdale where they would use an orchestra and the conducting of an orchestra to demonstrate how it is a perfect metaphor for leading a corporation, as it is. And so I, I didn't get that engagement. However, I've spoken with a number of my colleagues about that, and we're definitely going to, we're going to do that because at this point nobody is doing it. And I think it, the metaphor is fabulous mm-hmm. because uh, we could, for example people will have an opportunity to hear what micromanagement sounds like. Mm. What a neat thing that would be. Or, um, for example, we would say, what's the pulse of your organization? People say, what do you mean by that? And here we have all these senior managers sitting around the orchestra. What's the pulse of your organization? So I can just take a certain metronomic marking and we can just play a piece of music and just plod along at that. And without changing the pulse as I'm clicking here we could change the character of it now we're going to start to push the musicians and we're going to hear the sound become stressed and they'll probably make some mistakes as well and without changing that pulse 
Now we're going to pull it forward. And suddenly the sound becomes liberated and free. Isn't that interesting? And certain other things, we would say, who's prime leads? So the oboe has, what's the job of the conductor? Remo as in a corporation, remove obstacles. Pay it, focus on who's, who is prime, who's leading, and then generate and, and welcome a, a culture that is supportive to that. And so, and, and if we have that, for example, within the corporate world, so one time it might be finance, and then it might be marketing, it might be operations, and so forth. And so, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I'm so looking forward to that. It, that will happen. Uh, having said that, I've, as, as a musician, to be quite candid, I was always aware of my shortcomings. Always. Perhaps other people would say that too. Well, I was very much aware of them. Um, and... And it, I, I feel that, that now what, what the, the work that I'm doing is really analogous to conducting. I'm with groups of people. We have a leadership forum. I start by saying that everything you need to know about leadership is already within you. As Plato would say, you can't teach anyone anything they didn't already know, for that would be has to give sight to blind eyes, the fifth book of the Republic. Or Michelangelo would say the image is in the stone, he just takes away the excess. Yeah. I said, we're gonna we're gonna build on the resource of everyone in this room, your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience. So that we're gonna co-create a process by which we're going to increase in our leadership skills individually and collectively. So people are, oh, gee, that's unusual. So I'm not just there with a PowerPoint and so forth. And intuitively just just feeling the energy of the room moment by moment mm. the transcript of all of these courses would be distinct each one would be unique because it's this group of people and it's it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful experience i just i just love it and that people who are again in a working forum are revealing themselves with such candor vulnerability transparency their title vanishes. They're just a person. And it's beautiful. And I, I, I'm, I'm honored and deeply grateful to serve in that way. Yeah, Peter, my, my dad um, played an instrument. He played the oboe. And in fact, he got asked by the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra to, to play with them. And he said no, because that was a great regret of his life. He was too chicken. Uh, he, he talked about the, that even as a 75-year-old, still regretted that, and it was like 50 years before. Wow. And he always said that the hardest instrument to play, because I asked him as a little boy one time, I was like, Dad, what's the hardest instrument to play? And he said, the second oboe. And what he meant by that is that position. Yeah. And so when you're talking about the metaphor of leadership and team, he always talked about like that for him was to, 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 to not be the first, but to play the second and know and know your role in the in the overall goal like goal and in, in orchestra and to play that the bet to the best of your ability and I, I never forgot that so that, that's what made me think of it when you were talking about that beautiful yeah well the thing is too i think that so oftentimes we confuse leadership with position title status whatever mm -hmm. whereas leadership is just behavior mm -hmm. uh, and i think that the the model of leadership which is which, which we have practiced for such a long time which is a top-down command and control carrot and stick and all this extrinsic motivation um, people are just not interested in that anymore millennials they're not interested in having someone tell them what to do they would rather say 
ask them, mm-hmm. now, how, what, what strengths would you like to bring to this enterprise? How, how would you like to stretch and grow? What would, a, what would reward look like to you that would be deeply meaningful? And, and to, yeah, again, just to recognize that, that, that as leaders, more and more, our, our, our greatest opportunity, our greatest challenge, our greatest honor is to really examine who we are. Um, Lao Tzu said, our work is to discover our work. So the work itself hmm. is just a forum. Yeah, love that. But it, it's what we are learning about ourselves in the process of that work, how we are connecting to others through that work. It's an agency. Mm-hmm. It's not an entity. And without pride, just doing it as well as we, we can, but also what we are discovering about ourselves. There's a moment in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness where Kurt and Marlowe, they're foils for each other. And the statement comes, I'm paraphrasing slightly, where it says, one says, you know, it's not the work itself, it's the opportunity to, to discover yourself through the work. Mm-hmm. So how am I, what am I discovering in myself that I never knew existed before? And how can be this be of benefit to others in their quest to to find their true purpose and through the work? There may be, may be p- people listening who don't see their work that way at all. And I think it, it's really important what you do in terms of digging down, getting deeper, what finding meaning um, and, and being able to create our own reality and, and our own um, yeah, fi- find our purpose and find, find meaning in, in what we're creating um, now I want to uh, I did say a, a few minutes ago that we would kind of jump back um, and, and start more towards the beginning and we, we do have a, a podcast called Obstacle Course and so we, we like to right. sh- shine, uh, <laughs> shine some light on, on some of the things that, that people may not realize one one thing that we we often do when we look at someone who we deem to be successful as as many people would would look at you that way um is think oh they've probably you know just lived a glorious life and and it's been just a a shining example of of someone who made all the right decisions and uh, and always the case is that's not the reality there there has been some some major trials and and obstacles that that have been overcome and 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 maybe still uh eat away um because the the journey is is never really finished so i thought um a place where something we talked about when we were on the phone um which i know was hugely impactful and and can't even truly comprehend but um your mother passed suddenly when you were 11 years old Mm -hmm. and um Actually, on July 3rd, I, I read, which is the day that I was born in of a different year, uh, which is just a, uh, it was a surprising correlation there for me. But I wonder if you would speak about uh, the details of that and, and if you have any re- recollection of, of how it affected you as an 11-year-old. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have a very clear recollection of it. Um, Emotion is is the is the most powerful anchor for for memory, mm-hmm. and so yes, my mother died July third, nineteen fifty nine, 
And I remember the August prior to that, August 58, we were at a summer cottage with an aunt of mine and so forth. And we were out uh, swimming in the water, just treading water and so forth. And my mother said to my aunt that uh, she was to go to, do- to the hospital because, or to a doctor because she had this, this lump in her, in her throat. And, and so she did. And, um, and then in the course of, of, of the, the year after that, she, she went into hospital. She had surgery to remove this lump. She had to have a, a tube put there. That she had to cover the aperture of that to speak. I'm not sure that's exactly technically what that's called. But nevertheless, um, she was there for about six weeks. And on and off for the com- during the coming months, she'd be in hospital for periods of time. So there was a real disruption in our family flow. My sister was then seven and a half. My brother was three. And so I was the only one who could actually go to the hospital in the evening. It had to be a certain age to get into the hospital in the evening. And my father would come home. We would have supper. Uh, a neighbor would look after my brother and sister. And we would typically go to the hospital together. And so nothing was, nothing was said. That was the interesting thing. Nothing was said about the gravity of her of her health and deterioration of her health. Now, my father told me years later that he knew, so she was diagnosed in September, and he knew even at that time that she was not going to last a year. The doctor told him that. But perhaps it was it was the culture of the time. Mm-hmm. You just didn't talk about those things. And I realize now more and more how we have to have closure in our relationships. It's so important. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and closure, and at least, and to speak openly to that, painful as that be, may be, because the greater pain is something which is un, left unresolved. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in any event, the, how did I find out about her her death? I was staying with an aunt, with my brother, on a, on their at their farm, uh, about hundred miles from Toronto, and. I guess it would be July 4th, the day after she actually passed, that this clergyman came to visit my aunt. And I thought, this house is so odd because my aunt was not a religious person. I never knew her to go to church. And so why would this clergyman be coming? But then I thought to myself, oh, maybe he wants to meet the head boy of a church. <laughs> I was a singer. I was the head boy in a choir in Toronto. <laughs> you know, oh, how, how, how pretentious is that? <laughs> oh, whatever. And, yeah. and so he... I went outside and I was introduced to him and he was a lovely guy. And then he proceeded to ask, in, in, over a very short space of time, he asked me a number of questions and he said, well, tell me about your father. And I said, well, he's a salesman, he's in Toronto, he comes up here on the weekends and, and so forth. And then, what about your mom? Or no, I said, well, she's in hospital. Uh, she's been in, in and out of hospital for the past year. Uh, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to go to a cottage together. We always rent a cottage for two weeks. That's, that's our family custom or whatever. To which he said, I suppose it was very awkward for him. It's a very difficult thing to do. And he said, um, Peter, you have the name of a man in the Bible. I'm sorry to say your mother is dead. Just like that. And I just fell to the ground because I had no preparation for that. And I remember that, that night, as I relived that, hugging my brother. And um, of course, he didn't know anything. And I wasn't going to tell him that either. But just holding him and, and somehow 
vowing to take care of him. The following day we went to Toronto uh, and I saw my, we went to my father's home or to our home and my father was there with other people and he said that at that time that he'd known this was going to happen for some time and I didn't know what to say. I, I, I mean I could have said but I didn't say, you know, why didn't you tell me this? But I didn't say that. And then we went to the funeral home, we saw her there. Um, and the day after that was actually her funeral. I decided not to go to the funeral. This was a very interesting moment in my life. How we, it's what the circumstance is, but it's how we, how we address it. Um, so I protected myself in a way, or I shrouded myself from really that experience and stayed in my grandmother's home while everyone went to the funeral. And when everybody came back, there was a gathering in the garden and we had food and conversation and two of my cousins were there and they said to me, you know, Peter, you're, you're, you're laughing. You, you don't even seem to miss her. And I, I recognized years later that I'd already quickly learned a behavior, a protective behavior, which was I was never going to be caught off guard again. I just shut myself off following year, um, 13 months later, in fact, my grandmother, to whom I was even closer, had died at that time. And so uh, the sort of the anchoring to emotional anchoring securely to, um, to the mother image and the, the feminine energy was something that I was lacking as a child. And it, it, it's interesting how life plays out because uh, many, many years later, I was, by that time I was, I guess I was living in Edmonton, not sure, and had opportunity to conduct the Canadian Opera Company on tour. And so we had the rehearsals in Toronto, then we were going to go to, I think, nine or, was it nine or 19 of the United States and the province of Ontario on this nine-week tour playing The Marriage of Figaro every night. And I was staying with my, with my father. By that time, he was remarried to a lovely person. And I said, you know, Dad, I'd like to take you out for supper, just to thank you for letting me stay with you here. And I said, I think we should go and see a movie. You know, I, I've, I've, there's a movie called Terms of Endearment. I don't know what it's about, but I think it could be rather interesting. <laughs> and we went there. Again, I was caught totally off guard. Totally off guard. And that was, I, I would say that that was the, the one, one moment in my life when I just lost complete control. When this showed up, because this was this was our story. Here was an older brother and a younger brother, and their mother was dying of cancer. And how they were processing that, or trying to process that uh, emotionally. And I remember just you know just just weeping in the, during the film when when that came up. And I grabbed my father and I told him how much I loved him, and it was a very powerful moment. Um, now, how has that developed further in my life? One thing that I, that I, to which I give a lot of attention now, and a tremendous amount of as much support as I can, is women in leadership. So, to really recognize that it, we need that kind of nurturing in the world. I'm not trying to be stereotypical in my statement about women, but to be nurturing. It seems to me in a man's world, and we've had 2,000 years of that somehow, uh, conflict is resolved with aggression. I win, you lose. Mm -hmm. Well, 
how, how about a situation where we can have a conversation and grow and deepen our experience and and enrich each other through that that opportunity it might be through some sort of adversarial situation or challenge or whatever and i think that that's um and even in my coaching i would invite a man to to really explore so to say his his feminine side his Mm -hmm. i said you want to be really make a deep connection allow yourself to be vulnerable well, it's okay. And when you say feminine side, it's really our human side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's right. these labels are just Yeah. It's I mean, the totality of who we are. I know what you mean like historic perhaps historically. Feminine, yeah, exactly. Historically. Know? But but it's but it's really our human side. This absolutely. Is, this is all well, of us. We yeah. we don't have to put up these walls. Yeah. And all this bravado. Yeah. And and I think too how we've been conditioned, you know, the boys don't cry, whatever. This yeah, kind of thing. For sure. Uh, that's that's quickly becoming passe. Thank goodness. There's mm-hmm. such a great change going on in the world, and for all the entropy that we see, and for some of the, well, one might even say obscene behavior that we're seeing around the world from people who are in positions of authority, not necessarily leaders. It really awakens, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a golden opportunity, a time of great transition. Do you think any of that motivation to uh, empower and influence and, and bring more of that um, compassionate leadership and nurturing um, into the world do you think any of that is motivated by a lack uh, that you had growing up of that nurturing female um, influence I don't know if I could answer to that um Perhaps people who've known me long might be able to say that better. It's sometimes very difficult to see yourself. Perhaps another question that's related to that perhaps is what are what are some gifts that your mother or grandmother gave you? Oh my. Be- before they passed that you still uh, utilize and perhaps depend on? That's a, that's a beautiful question. So I would say uh, of my my grandmother um, well, to tell it two two stories. Someone said to me once, "Oh, well, I guess you regret that your mother never saw you conduct." And I said, "Well, actually, she did see me conduct." People said, "How's that possible?" And I said, "Well, when I was in kindergarten, we had something called the rhythm band. You know, <laughs> just people banging on whatever drums and stuff. <laughs> and on that particular day, for whatever reason, the teacher said, "Oh, Peter, you can be the conductor today." I mm. thought that's you know. What's the chance of that? I think it's rather interesting. Um, my grandmother was not a sophisticated person. Uh, she was a very intuitive person. And I think that that's something that I've certainly picked up from her. So, for example, she took me to see a film by Franz Liszt when I was six. I don't think she even knew who Franz Liszt was. But somehow, intuitively, she thought, hmm, I think Peter needs to see this. And I remember, I was, so I, I had a singing voice, and somehow I was, I found my identity in music. Um, yeah, so I sang my first solo when I was in grade one. And interestingly enough, it was 
when you when you look back to this, you can think, gee, that all sort of makes sense as a person's lived their life. So we had something called the PA system in those days, public address system. And this was the grade one class, and we did a presentation to the whole school. And the teacher asked me to, to sing. And what was I going to sing? Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. Putting any religious uh, aspect to that statement, we think about being a radiant person, being a person who gives somehow awakens the light in other people. I've done that a lot in my life, and I don't say that with any bravado. I haven't done it perhaps enough for myself, but I, that's certainly how I've that's that's how I feel. That's my fulfillment, mm-hmm. and. So I, I sang at my grade at graduation and so forth, and somehow I defined myself as, as a musician. I, in music, I felt that I had worth. And in other ways, I felt I had little worth. I had, my, my father had low self-esteem. That's just the way he was. Um, he was a salesman. I think that he would say it was much more important. It was important to be liked, maybe not as much as be respected. And I think he saw himself much to be a victim. And I say that with great compassion. My father was a good man. He kept his family together against great odds. Anyway, to speak to my grandmother again, here I was singing in this choir and eventually became the head boy in this choir. And she, there was a, she, she gave a whole month's old age pension so that I could go to a choir school and I think, my goodness, that is just awesome. Just awesome that she would sacrifice to that extent. I don't think she did that for it. She had nine grandchildren. She was loving to all of them. But she didn't She didn't put herself out to that same extent. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I can, I can see her now. Yeah. When I say it's interesting, when I say that to you, you, you create such a lovely environment here. Um, so my eye is not my ear. My eye is my strongest faculty. And for example, like when I'm reading something, I can, if I'm quoting it in a course, I never have materials. I can see it written on the page. I'm, so it's. Mm-hmm. But also, for example, um, I can just call up if I wanted to see my father. I can see him right now. I can see my mother. I can see her. She's standing right there now. I can be driving on my bicycle, and you know how quickly you would just look at someone and then keep your eye to the road. And I can see that person. And now I can just flash that person in front of me with exactly like I took a photograph, and they're with me. Dumb, dumb. So my eye has always been strong. Anyway, that's just a little thing. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, it's not. Doesn't seem like a little thing to me. Even just that that one way of depicting it is that. Is that a gift that that you think you just received, or is it something that has been trained, a skill that has been honed over over your years and your experience? I think yes, I definitely developed it. It just instinctively. I didn't do it methodically by any means, and it's it's been extremely helpful, very helpful. Yeah, exactly. But, but having people you love and respect who believe in you at a young age, I think, is critical. Absolutely critical, because some people never get that. And they have, to, they have to find out through many trials and many decades a way to believe in themselves. But for you at a young age, for somebody to sacrifice their, their month's salary 
because they believe so strongly in, in your gift and they've I mean that's that allows you to start to believe in yourself I mean you're, yeah. you're a very confident person and, and it seems, seems to be that, you, that you've been that way for a while and, and as you said your dad had trouble finding that confidence yeah but, exactly. it, but you were given that gift at a young age um, I would say that in terms of confidence it took me a, maybe I'm just 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 barely coming to that at this point in my life what does confidence mean yeah. when you have faith in yourself right. I think for, for much of my life I said this to my sister recently that I, I felt I always had to prove myself that I, as I was I was not enough and so there were so many so many times when I would just have to give more, take take the road the road less taken, whatever that looks like, and and then to be so grateful that I'd actually did that and and didn't just sort of take the conventional route. I'll give a quick example to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started a professional choir, semi-professional choir, in 1970, and in I would I would go to the rehearsals of the Toronto Symphony and listen to their dress rehearsals just quietly hidden up in the shadows not declaring myself or anything of that sort and with this semi-professional choir because I had interest in in conducting um, at one point we hired a small orchestra so we had choir and orchestra actually we did it twice and a couple of those musicians from the Toronto Symphony more seasoned musicians they said you know we think you could actually be a conductor I find that even more astounding now because generally musicians are not that supportive of people to become conductors. Um, And it it so happened that uh, in 1973, one of these people phoned me on a Monday night. The dress rehearsal was always on a Tuesday morning. And he said, you've really got to come to this rehearsal tomorrow. We've got an exceptional conductor and he's, he's, he's very special. I think you can... You know, we haven't any seen anybody of this caliber before. So the following morning, I, as he suggested, I dutifully came to the rehearsal and sat up in the in the shadows where no one would see me. And at the break in the rehearsal, he came down into the audience and he hailed me to come down. I said, yeah, well, what do you want? He said, I want to introduce you to this conductor. I could actually hear my knees <laughs> cracking. I mean, <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs> this conductor was Eric Leinsdorf, who was... A global conductor. He was he was amazing, and so he introduced me to the conductor. And I just want to talk about the road less taken because, it, and he introduced me to him and said, "Maestro, none of us have played with this young man, and we feel that he has the makings potentially of a conductor." So I sat down, and this musician left. The musician left, and we started to have some conversation. And he asked me a few things, and then the musician came back, and he said, "Maestro, isn't there something you could do for this young conductor?" That's pretty emphatic. And he looked at me pretty firmly, sternly, and he said, I'll write a letter. You can use it any way you like. Maybe you could travel with me for a year. Wow. So I was quite overwhelmed by all of that. Came out of the blue. And I went and listened to the rest of the rehearsal and and then just proceeded to leave. Well, a couple of days later, I got a call from the Toronto Star, and they said, oh, we hear that you're going to go and study with Eric Leinsdorf. I said, I hadn't even made that decision. Hmm. Not at all. Oh. Um, 
I guess. <laughs> and so here's here's the road less taken. So I could have taken a very comfortable position. I was I was an organist in one might say that sort of the best position in Toronto, in a, in a church where the choirs had sung across Europe and across Canada and so forth. And there was an opportunity, at least I, I'd, I'd had an, uh, an interview for the, to be music master at Upper Canada College, and, and there was a good possibility I would get that job. So all of these things would have been very comfortable, very secure and all that. But that's not the way it was going to go. So I had... I had $254 in the bank at that time, and I did a little bit of research and determined that if I followed this man for a year, it would cost me $9,000 in 1974. It's like $40,000 now. And so I thought, well, how am I going to do this? And there was no way out, because now it was in the paper. You know, you put yourself in a box, you just can't hear, and there's no way out. And I resigned from my position. I said, I'll leave this church, and but how am I going to do this? And so I thought, well, I'll apply to the Canada Council. Well, they said, thanks very much, but we've already, you know, we've taken all our applications and there's nothing left. So too bad. You'll have to wait another year, if at all. Okay. Well, I'll give a recital for myself, a benefit recital for myself. And so I did on May 15th. And it made me $1,500. So I was up to $1,954 or whatever. Wow. And then, and then I thought, where can we go from here? And in my choir, it's an interesting thing. I've been reading Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. He studied the behaviors of many successful people. And when you set a goal to something and you absolutely commit to it and there's no way out and you charge that with emotion, amazing things happen. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's, it's now proven even in quantum physics, there's no, there's no distance between mind and matter. That thought is kinetic and all time is now. Nevertheless. So, nevertheless, I... I I had in my choir, there was a man named Dr. George Beagree. What a gentle, lovely Scottish man he was. And he was the head of the dental faculty. He could say, well, where's this going? So I, I, I needed something done with my teeth. And he said, oh, I'll come over to my house and I'll just do this for you on a Sunday. Here's the head of the dental faculty. He's my choir. And he said, Peter, you know, I've been thinking about your situation. Why don't you apply to the Galbankian Foundation of Great Britain and Portugal? I'd never even heard of the Great Britain, what, of this foundation. Who was Galbankian? Well, he was a great oil magnate of the early 20th century. Okay. And he said, I'll help you do this, and we'll get the details. And so I sent that off. Anyway, June came and went, and July came and went, and I eventually would not have any income at all because my contract was going to run out in August. And I realized that I, if I'm going to commit to this, I have to see... Eric Leinsdorf, meet with him in New York on September 15th. And there's no way out of that. And by that time, I've got to have these funds in place. So it got up to August. And the days rolled on. August 4th. And I got a communication from the McLean Foundation, which is a division of Canada Packers. They said, you know, we've heard about your story. It's very unusual. We can act, can, cannot actually give money directly to a person, but through the University of Toronto, in the form of a scholarship, we could give you some money. In fact, we can give you $4,000. Oh, wow, that's just awesome. Anyway, we're still a fair distance from the goal, but that was pretty amazing. And then we came to September 1st, the 2nd, the 3rd, I'm leaving on the 15th. I think it was around the 5th of September, and in those days we got a telegram. 
was from the Galbagian Foundation of Great Britain and Portugal. We thank you for your application. We generally don't give such small amounts of money. We support universities or philanthropic organizations and we, because this is a very, this is a big fund. But the story is so unusual that we would like to support you in this. Mm. We'd like to award you 2,000 pounds sterling. The total amount of money coming in, $9,484. Mm. So where I could have gone the comfortable route or right. take that extra step. And I think about Helen Keller who said, life is either an amazing adventure or nothing at all. Mm. Now that's pretty extreme. Mm. But we think about her circumstance, you know, for most of her life, she was mm. deaf, dumb, and blind. An yeah. amazing person, amazing. A person, who was a, a person who was also once asked, what could be worse than blindness? She said, sight without vision. Mm. So these things really echo. And when I think about the way that my life has unfolded, where certain things just happened and they, they were, they seemed in the moment to be pretty painful and daunting, but actually they turned out to be fortuitous, if not serendipitous. Mm. And so I think, oh, wow. And so when, if I'm coaching anybody or if I just look at my own life and I say, well, certain things that happened, yeah, it was, it was pretty horrifying at the time, but actually what came out of it was a, a discovery in myself that I'd never found before and the realization of potential that I'd never even knew was there and a much greater sense of fulfillment and a deeper connection to my own soul. Wow, <laughs> that was great. So something I'm curious about is you mentioned a few minutes ago about a lack of confidence or, or true confidence or belief in oneself and and it's something you've you've come to develop further at this point in your life but even as i say that you're you're you're, you're you seem uncertain and i'm wondering there's a lot of people this is a, a lot of people's reality our own self concept is is often our biggest challenge and why might it have been that despite all those in- extrinsic factors but gifts of of care and time and money that that people were bestowing on you why do you think it might have been that you still had such a challenge in creating a, a healthy self-concept or self-esteem well i think that comes right back to our own belief system um Perception is reality, obviously, and uh, regardless of what, how others may see us, we may see ourselves very differently. And I, I think sometimes <clears throat> that a lack of confidence can be quite a driver in a person's life, a, a tremendous amount. Uh, gee, I, I'm just trying to think of some of the people that, yeah, it's been a, a driver in my life for sure. It, 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 has, it has challenged me to really test my limits and to push myself out of a comfort zone or any kind of lethargy, for sure. Um, and uh, I, I've, I, I had a, an interview program such as yours, which I think is wonderful. You do this beautifully so you create such a safe space thank you for that opportunity and I remember the number of people that I interviewed many of them there were actors and performers and uh, 
they would make statements about themselves where you'd say, oh my goodness, I mean, you're so successful, but you somehow don't see it yourself. Um, yeah, we have a, well, maybe it gets a bit off topic, but it's it seems rather interesting. So we have a president of the United States right now He's who is extremely wealthy and who finds it necessary to belittle people all around him. What does that say about him? Mm -hmm. The D Dalai Lama doesn't belittle people. He's seen, he's seen his own people murdered by some Chinese soldiers, not all Chinese soldiers. He refers to them as his brothers. He chooses compassion. Uh, and that same person, Donald Trump, but I'm not saying this with any judgment, everybody's got their own, their own stuff, their own struggle. But and any kind of criticism of him, he's, oh, he's just on his hind legs. Well, for all of his apparent success, he's not very confident. Um, there was a story that I remember, I was, I was studying in Dubrovnik, Yugoslavia, with a conductor, Lovro Maticic. He was such a lovely man, beautiful. He never had any children of his own. And he would say to me, you know, if I had a son like you, I'd be so happy. And, and I... I he was a beautiful man, just a lovely, lovely soul. Anyway, I, would, I was visiting with him one night, and uh, there came a, a family friend, and she was she was Croatian, but married to an English producer, who was directing a lot of films for the BBC, and she related a story that I found to be very interesting, talking about leadership, talking about confidence talking about connecting with people and helping them to connect with themselves. And she relayed a story where Richard Burton was starring in this, I'm not sure what the play was, but nevertheless. And her husband, whose name was Philip Morris, actually, <laughs> uh, was directing. And as she relayed, when, when Richard Burton would sort of say, get a little bit lost in himself, he would start shouting. He would go over the top. He would give more than, than was required and blow everything out of proportion. And so her husband, it, it, that, it, in such a situation, said, Let's, I think we should take a break. And he said, Richard, I'd like to speak with you if you wouldn't mind. And so he took him aside. And here was Richard Burton, very successful, at least to all appearances, all very successful. And he took him aside and said, Richard, I'd like to say something to you privately. Absolutely. Richard, what we have just witnessed was some of the greatest acting I've ever seen in my life. And I just want to tell you, just person to person, how deeply grateful I am to have experienced that through your agency. When they went back on the set, it was the greatest acting that he'd ever seen. Hmm. Amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, so there is an example of phenomenal leadership. Yeah, and I I think you know the things that I would or what 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 is as an example what could we take from that well what we feed will grow for sure but also when we just really embrace someone with love and look to the best of them most likely that's what we're going to call forth and that's a wonderful thing um, Dr David Bohm was the founder of imp the implicate theory of quantum physics I I am not smart enough to speak to what that really means. However, the statement that he made was, what we seek is evidence to what we find. 
If we're looking for greatness in people, we most likely will find it. If we expect people to mess up, perhaps they will. But to have that 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 hope and that dream and belief is a wonderful is a wonderful thing because everyone, I believe, is somehow challenged with confidence. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Brene Brown? Yes, we very much. We haven't brought her up in a couple episodes. <laughs> <laughs> she she comes up almost every episode, but she has this lovely phrase: the the hustle for worthiness. And that's what it made me think of when you're talking about uh, this hustle we all have. And I think it's a human, it's a human hustle. Yeah. I, um, I think most people hustle for their worthiness. And, 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 you know, you said something interesting earlier, how sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it, it, it pushes you to become better because, because you want, it's almost like, I guess, one extreme could be you're literally hustling for your worthiness. Well, you know what happens. You'll never get it. Yeah. Right. It's a hustle that never ends and it's very exhausting and, and you tire yourself out and you don't arrive to where you want to be. So I guess part of the part of the question I have is how do you have the balance where you're you're not hustling for your worthiness, but you're but you're working hard to become better and, and achieve confidence through that. It's a bit of a balancing act, I would imagine. Right. It is a balancing act for sure. I, I think that most people would, or many people would say, I have these gifts to be worthy of them. I've, I've got to nurture them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a plot of land and now how, how am I going to sow so mm-hmm. whatever there to, to, to be grateful for it, to, to nurture it? Yeah. Uh, what am I going to grow there? What am I going to grow within myself that I can really feel that I've, I've done my best, even on my own terms. The thing is that we're we're gregarious; that we're we're part of a flock. We're, we're not individuals. And so, how do we reflect off others? And how do others see us? And how, somehow, how do we maintain our individuality and yet fit in? Um, I think that's a, that's that's mm-hmm. a challenge to to everyone. Absolutely. In a, another interview that you did, I read that um, the, the question was asked, when will you be writing a biography or, or an autobiography? And your response was, well, I, I'm not sure if my, if my life has been, is at the point where I'm ready to do that or, or something of that nature. And, but you did mention that you were thinking of writing a book. And I'm wondering if that's, still something that you have in mind or even if you just want to speak to the um the idea behind the book or 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 what it may be um giving the world that's a good question um i did attempt to write a book twice and uh anyway i I wrote most of it and i thought oh this is just awful the book was called mastering fear lessons of my journey Mm. And then I started writing it again and, and just abandoned it. And I, 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 at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me that, that this is something important for me to do. Uh, I love the direct connection with people. And that's where I love coaching. I love courses and so forth because we're co-creating in the moment it's dynamic it's personal it's right there it's not something that's 
theorized or mm -hmm. coming from a text or a PowerPoint presentation. No, we're right in that. We're immersed in this amazing community discovery in a place of safety. And it's, that's, that's fabulous. Um, and that's what gives me phenomenal, I would say joy, joy, really, it's, and purpose. It's, it, 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 there's just nothing. The days when I'm not doing that, I feel are a little lacking. Hmm. And uh, at, at this time that we're doing this, I'm anticipating something that's coming up in, in, in about eight days. And it's going to be a, a course all about presentation skills. Most people dread public speaking, but it's much more than presentation skills. You know, how do we, and we, we will learn, we will actually develop tools, if one wants to say that, skills by our collective experience and insight and knowledge and on, on how to, to be pr present, how to build rapport, how lovely is that? Uh, how to motiv people, motivate people intrinsically, how to, uh, how to engender intraspace communication, all these things, how to master fear of public speaking. Wouldn't that be interesting? Mm -hmm. And that, that dynamic is, is wonderful. Um, well, and I would have bought that book. So, <laughs> so and I'm sure Andrew you can take the well. title. <laughs> I don't own it. <laughs> so, what are some of those fears that you've mastered along the way that have allowed you to be in the place you're in? Mm -hmm. That's a very, very, very good question. Uh, I think the first the. the Primarily, the, the 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 one was that as I am, I'm not enough, mm -hmm. and um, so how have I have I mastered that? I've just come to terms with it by saying, "This is what I have to offer," and I'm I can I can say with with my all my heart that I'm giving I'm bringing everything that I've got to this. If it speaks to someone, I'm grateful. If it if it doesn't, well, I've done my best, and I'm doing it. I have, I have to ask myself continually, what's my motivation? What's my burning why here? If it's for any kind of glory, hmm, not interested. The joy for me is how it shows up in another person by their own reckoning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I so believe that the only things we get to keep are the things we give away. I'm I'm convinced of that. That well, in my own heart. You know that that's a sign, in. Uh, you know the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Mm -hmm. That's literally a sign in in uh, George Bailey's dad's office. That exact phrase. Oh, really? Oh, that's wow. one of my favorite movies of all time. We watch it every year. That's how I know that. <laughs> wow. that I didn't know that. That's literally, I thought that's might where you got it from, but it's, no. it's a sign in his dad's office uh, at the old building alone. And uh, anyways, um, I just thought that was cool. So I, was, I, I have a longtime friend. Uh, he's up in Tofino, and he's... He is my my assistant. I mean, that sounds. Here's a man who's been a wonderful professor. His students come back to him after thirty years and say, "I remember all the details of your lecture." And he's just a very true and loyal friend. And one day we were we were talking about the life everlasting, mm -hmm. and because someone had just died, and and he said, "You know, with all due respect to religious belief and so forth," he said, "For me, the life everlasting is not in the hereafter." but rather in the lasting memories we have left in the hearts and minds of people we have touched along the way. Mm -hmm. And so the people that we celebrate, even I've talked about my grandmother, my father, my mother, 
um, some teachers, people, and it's the, it's it's that it's that the residual benefit, and how we would carry on a certain standard in our life, somehow to be worthy of their example, and how lovely that is, inspired by their example, truly. That's a beautiful thing. I read a story one time about you, um, how you kind of got into teaching about public speaking. Weren't you at like a conference and somebody just kind of asked you to just, she had perhaps for her organization, she needed help. And she just sort of said, you seem to be really good at this. Could you just stand in and teach a little bit? Um, th this story I got was an article that was done on you about six years ago on the Times Colonist. Yeah. And, uh, I'm trying to prime you. Maybe it's not going to work, but uh, <laughs> no, that's fine. No, but, no, I'm, I'm just thinking back. I found that how this be, all happened. Did, did, did you read that article? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I had done some. I'd done if, some national broadcasting for yeah. CBC Radio. Right. That that's yeah. So I'll just touch on that, but I want to talk about the road less taken because there's there's an interesting pivotal moment in my life. So uh, and from from that and here's the thing too. I remember I, I was driving in my car. I'd graduated from university, or it was my last year of university, and I bought myself a new car. Unbelievable, when I was 21. Mm -hmm. Anyway, cars were not that expensive in those days. I think it was $2,000. <laughs> anyway, a long time ago. We can talk about the price of Coca-Cola and so forth. And that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, 10 cents, well, those were the days. <laughs> Nevertheless, and I said, I was listening to, to something called Afternoon Concert, hosted by Ken Haslam and Jim Robertson. And I said out loud, Gosh, I would love to be on the radio. Well, mm -hmm. 10 years later, I was hosting a national radio program for CBC Radio. Wow. And it didn't happen immediately. It, it, you know, I, was, I was in Edmonton. I was the um, whatever assistant conductor of the Edmonton Symphony for two years, after which time my contract was not renewed. You might say I was fired. I was fired. And while I was holding that position, I was doing some broadcasting. And so when I was fired from the Edmonton Symphony, by that time I was married and I had stepchildren and so forth, people to support. And um, I, I went to the general manager of the orchestra. I said, you know, I, I need this job. I, we, I, my wife is not able to work and there we are. And he said, oh, you'll be fine. Oh, really? Yes, because you can be broadcasting. So I was just doing a little bit of broadcasting on an FM station locally. But then they, someone from the CBC heard this. And they said, uh, oh, really? Uh, we, we, one of our guest hosts, his name is Dennis Woodrow. He hosts a program called RSVP Nationally. And we would like you to, to host that for 13 weeks while he's recovering from some kind of back surgery or whatever. I said, sure. So I did that. And in that time, the producers in Ottawa for Mostly Music heard me and said, oh, we'd like you to come and audition for Mostly Music, which was the preeminent musical program going nationally, AM, FM, five days a week out of Ottawa. So I did that for a year. Here's an interesting moment too. So I did that for a year and then the new producer came on the program and decided on having another host that often happens, I guess. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll leave Ottawa and um, come back and live in Edmonton, not knowing more what my future would bring. And while I was in, in Toronto, I got a call from the executive producer of Arts National, the preeminent program on CBC Radio at that time. And he said, Peter, I'm offering you 
to be host of Arts National. Wow. And I said to him, his name is, his name is Keith, your brother was Keith. I said, Keith, if I take this on forever, I'm going to be known as host broadcaster. My dreams of being a conductor will be shattered forever. So I returned to Edmonton. I remember counting change to buy supper and just doing bits and pieces here and there just to survive. And just how life moves forward, but having this dream, having this dream, still studying scores, although there was no opportunity to conduct them, to present them. And then in, I had auditioned for the Vancouver Symphony. They said, you're too good for this job. We'll invite you to, that sounds conceited. I don't mean that. They just said, we feel you're overqualified. We'll invite you to be a guest conductor, but we're not going to offer you a position as assistant conductor. So they offered me to be a guest conductor once in a while. And one of those events was 1986 for Expo 86. So I was out there conducting. And then uh, around that same time, there was a CPC talent competition for national television and, and, and. And so I said to my former wife, I think we should move to Vancouver. I think there is opportunity there. And certainly the, the CBC director at that time in Vancouver said, if you come here, there's going to be work for you in the CBC. And the executive director of the orchestra, the Vancouver Symphony, said, if you move out here, there'll be work with the Vancouver Symphony. By the time I moved out, that person from CBC was moved to Toronto, and the director of the, uh, of the orchestra, the executive director, had moved to San Jose, California. But I was in Vancouver. Rather good place to be, because in 1988, I was doing a little bit of work with the orchestra. And what do you know, in 1988, I happened to be on the podium the night that the Vancouver Symphony declared bankruptcy. And I want to talk about public speaking. That's, this is a long way. My goodness. No, what a, what just... an interviewer. Round and round and round. <laughs> this guy is a circuitous. <laughs> that's a circuitous way of answering something. But here's the story that, that is interesting to that, I, I think, I hope, anyway. And that is that uh, I had no official stature with the with the orchestra, with the orchestra, or the Vancouver Symphony, but I was on conducting the orchestra when it was proclaimed publicly that they were closing their doors, and uh, the musicians were crying, and it was it was in a in a very intense moment, very intense. And so the press came to me thinking I was a spokesperson. They said, "What do you think of this?" And I said, "I think it's a golden opportunity." I hadn't planned to say anything. Who am I? I think it's a golden opportunity to revisit, refine, and rebuild. The following day, Gordon Campbell um, phoned me very early in the morning. He was the mayor of Vancouver at that time. And he said, I, I read what you said in the paper. I'd like you to come to my office. I said, any particular reason why? He <laughs> said, well, anyway, I got to his office and he said, this is just intuitive, but I think you could play a key role in helping to rebuild the corporate co confidence and public support for the orchestra. So here was an orchestra that had the largest subscription audience in the world in 1980. 1988, because of a variety of unfortunate events, close their doors, public speaking. So uh, we went through a proposal in bankruptcy. All the, most of the staff, so we keep our charter, most of the staff went and got other jobs, the 23 people or whatever they were working for the orchestra. So we had I, myself and this other person. And in March of that year, this other person who was still on the staff, lovely individual, said, we're going to go to the Hotel Vancouver. I, she, I said, well, why? She said, I'll tell you when we get there. So when we arrived at the big ballroom of the Vancouver Symphony, or the Vancouver, or you know, the big ballroom of the Hotel Vancouver, I should say, I noticed that it was just, it was packed with people. Hundreds, maybe 300 people were there. And I said, who are these people? They said, these are all the leaders, the business leaders of Vancouver. 
What are they doing here? She said, you have half an hour to convince them to reverse their thinking, which has been developed over eight years, <laughs> and to support the Vancouver Symphony. Wow. So how was that possible? I have no idea what I said, but I know what I believed. Mm. And what I'm, so when I'm coaching people, I'll say, mm. them, what's, what's your desire? What's, what's the, the words are like notes to music. They're just words. The Japanese say words, nothing, meaning, everything. What's the meaning? Mm. People may forget what you said. They'll never forget the way you made them feel. When you feel inspired, when you're just un unstoppable in that, and an inspiration that comes from something much greater than yourself, you'll build a resonance that connects with other people. Mm. And there it is. Um, so I'm not sure about the first person who asked me to to coach them in public speaking. I think that... I think that f the first time that that ever happened was around 2004. And I won't name the person, but it was a very senior person in the TELUS Corporation. I was doing a fair bit of work for t with TELUS, leadership and coaching and so forth. And this individual had an opportunity to make a quantum leap to a very <laughs> high position. And so... Sorry, folks. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> and... Uh, and... Uh, I coached this individual, and she got that job. She had all the right stuff, but the whole structure, the whole tenor of this of the presentation was was different than what she would have done otherwise. You know what a what a wonderful story. I mean, we probably have ten questions we could we could dig into there, but the thing that stood out to me, and then I'm sure Andrew has a few questions, was the was the saying no to the arts national position for for somebody who who is declared that you know struggled to feel confident that takes a very confident person to turn down perhaps a position of perhaps of a lifetime i mean this is something that um that for your ego especially would have been amazing i mean it would be great on a resume you probably would have you know crushed it you would have done well at it you probably would have enjoyed it but deep down you knew what it would mean for for another dream where do you think you found the confidence to make such a decision? Just by knowing what what I really loved, to, would love to do, and um, to say that I'm not going to, regardless of the, how this works out, I'm I, I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to keep persisting, and I, I can think of. So many people who, I guess I, I didn't even know the example of, of so many people who had experienced enormous failure again and again and again and again, and just use that failure to, to galvanize their intention. Um, yeah, so it was, I mean, the thing is, I, I wouldn't have been happy being a broadcaster. That That's, yeah, it's, it, it, mm -hmm. it, it would be a great honor to be, to do that, but it, it, it was not it was not in my soul. So I was very interested in that decision as well. And and what uh, John asked the question really well. So I want to talk about how you how you had such an intimate and deep understanding of your values and your purpose at that point. Because you you just knew it in your soul as you described it, mm -hmm. and for for those listening, who who maybe haven't 
gotten to that place of, of deep understanding of, of their own purpose and, and their own value system, how you cultivate that knowledge. Thank you. Well, I, I think, I think we always to do to ask yourself, what do I love to do? What do I love to do? Um, and o only the individual can answer that question. There, there, are some, there are many wonderful coaching questions which I've learned through other, with other people and through my own experience. But it might be a question, three questions such as, when am I at my best? Not when I do my best. When am I at my best? What will I never do? It's a very powerful question. And what, it, what one word best defines me? That's a phenomenal question. It cannot be answered just flippantly. Really, or, who am I? What do I want? Why do I want it? That's three phenomenal questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think where we sometimes, I don't want to use the word fail, where we miss an opportunity, is that we don't ask ourselves why. Why do I? And I, I think that from childhood, just by circumstance, I was shaped by, or whatever, from the first time that I was a, a singer, oh, I have a singing voice, now I feel that I'm significant. If, I'm, if that's my archetype, musician, I'm significant. I feel that I have some worth to bring to the, the planet. And so then I'm going to choose from that extrinsic influence or recognition or whatever, nurturing, that if I'm in music, I feel that my life has some purpose. What's interesting is that eventually I found that my purpose was something deeper than that. that so that came to me extrinsically. But when I actually started doing this work of of coaching and, and then facilitating these these groups in a highly interactive Socratic process, I thought, hmm, this is really it. This is really it. It's still conducting in a different way. Well, because what is a conductor? But just an agent, a catalyst, that is um, exciting and inspiring uh, collaborative effort of, of other people. Well, and you use the beautiful phrase, the, you love the immediate conversation. Yeah. And, and that's, to me, that reminds me of conducting as well. You're conducting what's more immediate than, than each note and, and just everything that's involved in that. Absolutely. Um, and now you're doing that with people and organizations. So yeah. in many ways, you're still, you're still conducting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you're just writing a new, a new song, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It, that's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was, um, well, I've read a lot of books about leadership and people say, well, what is leadership? And I'd say, well, it's a learned and practiced behavior to incite and inspire human potential by our own example, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. And maybe that's not perfect by any means. Um, it's pretty good though. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> well, you know, could, could you, but there is a, there, there's one definition, it's not a definition, but a statement of leadership that I really thought, oh boy, this really, this really hits it on the nose. And it's from Stephen Farber. He wrote a book called Radical Leap, Extreme Leadership. And he said, to be a leader, he said, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Wow. Yeah. That's just as 
Love that. I can't imagine anything better than that. Mm-hmm. So when we do what, what we love, what we truly love, that 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 that's a, that, that's a generative behavior. So it's awakening other people's p- potential. Um, if, if we do what we love, we're going to pour our hearts into our activity with with courage and vulnerability, transparency, um, persistence, perseverance. It's in the service of people. It must be serving something greater than ourselves. No question. It can't be self-focused. And then it's going to be morally bound and ethically defined. And people are going to love what we do because the values that they hold, we are choosing in our own behaviors and actions. So there's an experience of community. And there's, I, I think that's, that's that's fabulous. I, I think in this time especially, we have so much in media and so forth. Um, for all the apparent convenience of life, we can have instant this and connection to this and Google search and you don't even have to go to a library anymore. For all of that and cell phones and texting, I feel that there is such a deep disconnection between people. And it's, it saddens me hugely. Hugely. How, where, where's the, where's that conversation to be just fully in the moment and just with someone beyond the words, just there. Be present to another. To be seen. I mean, fully for who we are. Really seen. Take away the mask. Just be. It's so rare. And, and, Perhaps, who am I to say, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I have such limited knowledge. But maybe that's the reason why there's so much escapism. Why people are drowning themselves with drugs and addiction of so many kinds as a distraction. Just because the pain inside is, is so is so great. And yet it seems to me that the, that pain could be at least assuaged if we just allowed ourselves to connect with another person, I mean, really connect mm-hmm. heart to heart, how lovely that would be. Sometimes um, people have said that I'm having a conversation and the phone will ring and they say, well, would you like to get that? I said, no, why, why would I do that? Our conversation is sacred. It's mm-hmm. here. It's now. If, that, if, if that's something urgent, they'll phone back again and again. I find that, and and we're completely aligned in, in the, the whole idea of being disconnected and the huge impact that it has on our interactions in our society and, and our need for distraction is, is yeah, I, I absolutely appreciate that. So I guess I'm curious about what first steps that you might suggest to to overcome that and i i think that the the fears that we we tell ourselves and and the negative stories that we tell ourselves are are such a huge driver of that um of those fears i'd love to hear your your opinion on on what steps people might take or 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 what steps leaders could take to help bring people closer together and, and remove that disconnect I think the first thing I would say is take time to pause. We're living in a 
situation where it's just continuous input, 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 output, input. Any learning happens in those moments of reflection, the, the valleys between the peaks. So to make pause part of our, our practice, just slow things down. And yeah, and, 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 and make it habitual. So we're, we're caught in traffic, and rather than railing against a situation that we can't change, is to say, hmm, let's just re- reflect mm-hmm. how lovely that is. But I would say to pause and to slow things down altogether. Um, the next thing is uh, just to be mindful in a conversation, just to, just to check ourselves and be there I mean, I, I use a in 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 the leadership course and and also presentation skills, presentation skills course um, or coaching. We just we do that with breath. So I'd say find your resting heartbeat minus fifty two beats per minute. I speak within that rhythm the whole time. This is fifty two beats per minute. There it is. And in that way, that that's meditative. I'm 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 aligning to my own in, innate rhythm my own relaxed rhythm. Uh, so that would be, so just to get into our breath, in our breath, and to speak, just breathe in through the nose to a count of four, to our own rhythm, and then out with the mouth, like blowing out a candle to a count of four. has an amazing effect. And we don't have to tell someone I'm doing this. I hit, by the way, I'm, I'm breathing to be with you here, just to be <laughs> within this moment with you. But just to get into our body, feel what's going on, inside our body. Someone says something, we feel a bit of tension in our shoulder, in our neck or something. Why is that? Because there's a thought that's triggered that emotional response, that physical response. Just to notice that. Just notice it. Don't get attached by it. Forget the judgment. Oh, I just noticed. Coming back into the conversation. Milton Erickson was a phenomenal psychiatrist. You're familiar with his work. Amazing. Matching and mirroring. And so he said, you know, we first want to match the other person's energy or their language and so forth. And once we have matched, so we're pacing with them, and now we're mirroring. And now, now, now it's an exchange back and forth. And how wonderful that is, just really be in the conversation. And it's, not, it's first with ourselves and then with another. I think um, there's a simple acronym, which is just STOP. So to be fully present to anybody, just stop, just stop. Take a breath and then just observe, just notice, and now we can proceed and make that a habit. And it's so simple, it looks simple, but how many people are stopping? I mean, it's just output, output, output. Someone sends a text or an email, they want a response in 10 seconds. Can't even give any considered thought to that. Take time, just step back, it's okay. And when, when, when with someone, fully with them. Mm-hmm. Fully. Without judgment, it's hard to do because we criticize in others what we fear in ourselves, I think. But just be in that moment. I, I love that in Buddhism. They say, if we can live within this moment, we will be free. Just, and, but it takes practice. You know, that's why we love doing the podcast. Because this is one moment a week where we know for sure we'll be 
in we're, we'll be having that immediate conversation you talk about yeah. all the phones are put away it's the first thing we do we're all sitting and we're staring at each other we're not thinking about anything else we get one of those a week and it's mm. a true privilege and i think it's one of the reasons people are responding to the podcast they they hear the conversations and they know boy that, that was a real conversation those, those guys were those guys or those guys and gals were were really in it and and this mindfulness you're describing it's a habit it's a discipline like anything else so if our listeners are, are thinking okay okay i'll try and be more patient when responding to a text or when sitting in traffic well this starts at home this starts with maybe getting right. up early and practicing meditation and mindfulness um, perhaps yoga and i know you're involved in all these things and so I, i'm guessing you would point to some of those things as helping you do that in everyday life but it's definitely not something you can just start right now it's it's a habit and especially in this day and age it's it's a habit that needs to <laughs> that needs that we need because with our phones we're just endlessly distracted yeah by by just superficiality really well it takes a lot of effort to practice those habits it because does, yeah. all the messages that we receive are are oh i got a text i have to respond to it or yeah. or i i need to be live on facebook or instagram yeah. right now I, yeah. I need to always be aware of some sort of technology that mm-hmm. that's really just using you as the product as as you're the consumer of that and they're they're profiting we're not mm. it's depressing <laughs> <laughs> but very true <laughs> yeah and i think but still follow us on instagram and facebook everybody <laughs> yeah well the, the, but, the cool thing about a podcast though is i i get the sense when i'm a part of it when i'm listening i i'm in that conversation maybe i'm not for sure yeah. maybe i'm not um, using my voice, but I'm present and I'm in the room. It's it's an amazing feeling, and and hopefully we we give that impression as well because mm-hmm. that that's what we want. and And it's a great practice just to sit back and listen to a conversation as it well. Yeah. It's not something we do. We're we're so often trying to figure out the next thing to say or our next our next word um, rather than actually just consciously taking in what what is being said around us well and that's why we don't do preset questions for our, our guests like all the guests are say oh where's the questions we don't do that as you know because we feel like we just need to allow the conversation to happen and if you listen you'll have a great conversation i mean that's, that's the bottom line i think we have to follow to lead yeah yeah for that's, sure. that's that's the main thing and it strikes me too that so much of our in our in our social behavior now is focused on doing rather than being. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do tonight? What is, we're, we're going to take our kids. Um, you know, what, what, what activities can we pay for to show that we're good parents? You know, they've got, they've got a piano lesson that we play hockey and we send them to summer camp. And by the way, here's a, here's a math coach as well for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with my nephew in Toronto. Lovely guy. Very nice person. Same, my name, Peter McCoppin, he is beautiful person and his parents are fairly affluent and so he had he 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 enjoyed a lot of good stuff and and they would be driving him different places and and so forth anyway so one time i was when i would go to toronto i would uh i would his his older sister her name is rebecca and they're just lovely kids and when they were both very young i would walk with them to school when, if I were in Toronto doing some work, walk with them to school, and I'd say, come home and you can have a hot lunch. It's not very far, come. And then I would like to spend some time with her. She's so gracious, my niece. 
and let's let's go out and have a cup of tea and go to a nice cafe, you know, and something like this. And she's only, we'll say she was 10 at the time. And with him, he would like to do these, whatever, to go with these bikes and jumps and all that. Anyway, so we did whatever. <laughs> but it was, it was what surrounded that, because there was always conversation going into those times. So one time I was with him in Toronto, and it was a very interesting moment, I thought. He thought, he thought especially. And I said, what do you think would be the most precious thing I could give to you? He thought and thought and thought, you know, could it be, you know, some kind of $10,000 bicycle or something? I don't know what. And he thought and he thought and he said, gee, that's such a hard question. I didn't, I thought the answer would be pretty obvious. He said, what do you think would be the most precious thing I could give you? I said, time. He said, you're right. So if we just give someone time, it doesn't have to be a lot. It's not measured by quantity, but by quality. And uh, it means the world. There's a, an expression in South Africa, it's a greeting, which is sawobona, which means I see you. That's the only way to greet somebody. And it's not, I see you for your gender, for your hair color, for the shape of your eyes, the color of your skin, your sexual orientation, your, your age. No, I see you, which is the heart and soul of you. And wouldn't it be lovely just to say, I want to see the people around me. Mm -hmm. So we have to pause for that and just be in the moment wherever that moment may be. Because life is very unpredictable. And maybe there's a person you've always known who was very humorous, and one day he shows up really sad, and you say, the temptation might be, hey, lighten up. You've always been the funny guy. But that's not how he is in this moment, to meet them where they are. And again, without any judgment, any assumption. Yeah, what is it, Scott Peck, for the, what is it, the road less taken? Life mm -hmm. is hard. Mm -hmm. So, but, it, but it, it's just where they are now. And just to be there is such a wonderful gift. Mm -hmm. To be fully present in quanti quality more than quantity. It's so confirming. So this this is, I know this, me and Andrews looked at each other. It's like, well, okay, this is a perfect place to start to wrap up because it's you brought us to this, such a beautiful point. But I think our listeners would kill us if we didn't ask you about this. So I want to bring this up. Um, well, I would kill myself if I didn't ask. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> I'd be, I'd regret it. Not there, asking. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> For the record, I would regret it. Okay. <laughs> such violent language. So a number of years ago, when we moved to the island, we were looking for something unique to do in the summer. And my wife was looking around and she's like, you know what? In early August, this symphony will be, they, they, they set up on the harbor in downtown Victoria and, they'll, and they perform. I'm like, what? Like outside, like on the harbor, like literally on the water, like on the water. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, we, we got to do this. So I started researching. Um, okay, well, like, you know, do you reserve a seat, all this stuff? And everyone's like, you better get there early. And so we, we said, we want to do this right. And so we showed up at like 6 a.m. We, we, yeah, we showed up at 6 a.m. We, we went down and people were already setting up their chairs and, and taking their spaces. 
and uh, we set down our spaces and there's there's a couple old timers there and we're like oh you guys are gonna be here for a while can you save our spots yeah no problem uh, we snuck some wine into <laughs> into some uh, um, travel mugs <laughs> which they loved by the way and we shared with them but uh, and we set it all up and then it, of course it was on that evening and this was this is what we call the symphony splash which everybody in Victoria has probably heard of and perhaps people even from around around the the world have have come to this well, this, was, of course, was started by the one and only Peter here. And so take us through um, the idea for that and what that gave you. Thank you. Well, I, I can't say that I, you know, it was just born exclusively out of my own mind. That would be no. un, untrue. However, um, the year before that, I was in Vancouver and... We were wondering why the orchestra had failed in the community. And I really thought about that a lot. And I think it was because I thought we'd become so distanced from our community. Here was an outdoor city, you know, where on one day you can go skiing, you can play golf, you can go salmon fishing. It's just, it's all around nature. And we're saying, no, 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 no. Just come in, come inside, you know, come into a concert hall and that's where you're going to experience the orchestra. And when the orchestra collapsed and we had our new board, I said, um, I think we have to have a different approach. And I remember the, the newspapers and anyway, media people came to me and said, what do you, what's going to be different? I said, in one word, embrace. They said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you'll see. So I thought in the summer, of the, in, in anticipation of the resurgence season, the new season, which begins always in September, we're going to do some amazing outdoor concerts. And I can't recall all the conversations, but we had six people running with the board and they were all very astute, amazing people. And some of the ideas that seemed a little far-fetched, but nevertheless, they eventually went along with it. Um, and for example, we did a concert with the orchestra on Whistler Mountain. You could say, who's ever going to go up a mountain to here? This is just, this is beyond ridiculous. <laughs> I said, well, we have to use some kind of marketing that's going to capture people's imagination. So we flew a full-size grand piano from False Creek, not over the city because that would I mean, it's obviously dangerous, but over the water. Wow. And then people would see this thing up in the sky and say, what is that? And what do you know? 6,800 people came to hear and sat on bales of hay to hear a symphonic concert, not a pops concert, Tchaikovsky Symphony, Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto, whatever, on top of Whistler Mountain. And we did several things like that. And, we, and then I said, let's connect to some other existing events that are going on. The Symphony of Fire, for example, is in the Inner Harbor. Well, why don't we do a concert that, that's tied into that? And we're going to play the 1812 Overture. And then the Symphony of Fire goes up the fireworks. And oh, gee, that sounds great. So we did that. And I mean, the whole, we, there was a lot of people got involved. I had a role in it. We had a lot of people who were bringing their wisdom, their knowledge, their connections to help make this happen, but nevertheless. And we came out $508,000 to the good after a bankruptcy year, so we were financially successful. Mm. And, you know, the audience was reinvigorated and whatever the community spirit. So having said that, when, when I got the, the position in Victoria, I remember distinctly, it was in, in 1989 in the Empress Hotel, and I was sitting with our general manager and with the chairman of the board. 
And we were talking about these concerts. I said, well, you know, what could we do here that would be somewhat the same? And we walked outside from the Empress and said, well, look, why don't we just do a concert right here on a barge? Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's how the whole thing came together. Um, yeah, so it, it, was, it was built on the past success of the Vancouver Symphony and nevertheless, but they were, did a lot to make this happen. So it was a cooperative. And um, for the first, I remember distinctly, even the first concert had 40,000 people there. Oh, yeah. And what is so beautiful about it, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says context defines behavior. That's the premise of his book, The Tipping Point. At the Symphony Splash, there's no garbage. We have never, there's never been garbage mm -hmm. left on the ground. Yeah. Uh, never violence. Even although we were just handing around these buckets to gather money, no one ever stole the money. And there was just that sense of, of community community spirit that was just so so special and we we found after after a few years of course it's been going now for 30 years mm -hmm. that some people would even plan their vacations around this and people would come internationally yeah. you know it was it was quite it was just then again it's it, the music is just an agent for an experience an agent for the experience of community that's right the music is not an entity in that it's an agent and I think if we look for that yeah it's quite beautiful yeah, I just thanks John for for bringing that up. And um, my family went every every year, every summer. It was a, one of the highlights. And we're not a family that's particularly cultured, or listened to a lot of classical music, um, or even went to symphonies really anywhere else. But it was always somewhere that we went. And I would never know who Tchaikovsky was if if not for the <laughs> Symphony Splash. And um, and it was one of the uh, the last moments that my family had together. Actually, when my dad was was ill, um, he we went in that August four years ago. And um, yeah, the last photo I have of the of him and myself and my uncle actually, who was in town at the time too, is at on the the grounds of the Parliament buildings at Symphony Splash. So. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Oh. That's mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So so thank you. On, <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, on behalf of the family. I know yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it has a lot of meaning. So Isn't that be that's yeah. a beautiful story? Appreciate it. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Well, as uh, time is beginning to wrap up for at least this conversation, which I, I do hope is the first of many. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, perhaps a final question. Uh, as you look back on on your experiences in your life up to this point, and you were to to give one word to to describe yourself uh, in the life that you've lived to now, what might that be? One word. Hmm. that's such a great question that is a hard question it's never been asked of me I think you just have to follow your heart you have to follow your heart it's so hard at times I mean Joseph Campbell saying follow your bliss and don't be afraid mm -hmm. you know, if you follow your bliss you'll be able to overcome that fear mm -hmm. and, and just yeah, just connect with that. 
there'll be all kinds of people around who care. They may care about you. They may say, oh, you should go here. You should go there. Do this. Don't do that. Oh, you, you'll lose everything if you go into the, into, into the arts or something. They mean well. You have to just listen to who, what's in your, in, on your own voice inside. And so I think that's, that's the most important thing. You just have to follow your heart. It's at times extremely hard. And the only re lasting reward will come if we do it. Otherwise, there'll be regret. For sure will be regret. Um, Mark Twain said, at the end of your life, you'll be far more disappointed with the things that you didn't do mm -hmm. than the things you did. And so he said, cast off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds, explore, dream, discover. Awesome. Well, I think the, the only word that I, I could possibly express right now is, is grateful. And you brought us into your home. Um, you shared your soul with us and, and you gave us so much and, and all the listeners as well. Let's not. Let's remember that there there are lots of people out there who got to experience this, and and uh, I'm sure they're feeling the same way. And and you've touched a, a lot of people um, with with everything that you have through the the life that you've led up to this point. And and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are grateful for the impact that you've made. So thank you. And and um, till till we do this again. Thank you, Peter. Thank you both. Thank you both for your care and for creating a space of safety and I would say love. You can, it's palpable. You can feel it right here in the air just to show up. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked what you heard here, Check out the website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe, check out the show notes. And if we have one request, we'd ask you to leave us a kind review and perhaps share this episode. It's not because we have fragile egos. Well. But because we want other great people like you to benefit. Speaking of great people, we have a list of people we want to thank. We've got our senior technical advisor, Andy Robertson. Our media partner and web designer, Sticky Media. And of course, our host and snack coordinator, Judy Langford. Oh, peanut butter cookies. You can continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast and on Twitter at Obstacle Pod. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep pushing through those obstacles.